You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Americans were struggling. Food, clothing, and gasoline were rationed. On the radio, disc jockeys played the Andrew Sisters' dance hit Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy and Johnny Mercer's G.I. Jive. During World War II, these upbeat songs kept spirits up. And Americans bonded over a common enemy. Several, actually. Nations jostled to either declare war against the U.S. or become allies. In an uncertain world, citizens relied on newspapers and the radio for information. To combat food shortages, neighbors planted victory gardens. They exchanged flowers to grace dinner tables and crops that fed families. Men stepped up to volunteer for service, leaving women behind to raise families and care for the homes and gardens. When it looked like baseball would be canceled, a women's league formed to keep Americans entertained with their favorite sport. But the country needed more. There was a shortage of munitions and war supplies, and a desperate need for workers to make them. Women whose husbands were at war had to feed themselves and their children. And just like in baseball, when the factories called for help, women answered. It wasn't easy. Some of their male colleagues resented them and made work difficult. To encourage more women to apply, and to alleviate men's concerns that women would forever take over their jobs, America looked to marketing to reframe women at work. 17-year-old Geraldine Hoff Hoyle didn't think about the photographer who snapped her photo at the Ann Arbor Metal Factory. She'd worn a polka dot scarf and coveralls to work. 
and 20-year-old Naomi Parker paid little attention to a photographer who took her picture, too. Like Hoyle, Parker also sported polka dots in her wardrobe. She'd used the spotted bandana to hold back her hair as she bent over a piece of machinery. In 1943, Westinghouse artist J. Howard Miller created the first Rosie the Riveter poster. A polka dot headscarf held her hair out of her face. The sleeves on her blue shirt were rolled up, and Rosie flexed a bicep. The caption above her read, We can do it. Norman Rockwell created a cover for the Saturday Evening Post featuring Rosie. In Rockwell's depiction, readers got the message that while men were off fighting the war on the front lines, women were doing their part on factory lines. Kentucky-born Rose Monroe and her two children moved to Michigan after her husband died. Rose had always been a tomboy of sorts and handy with tools. Though Rose wanted to become a pilot, she was passed over. Instead, she took a job building B-24 bombers. Later, she became the only female member of a local aeronautics club. Rose's work building the aircraft caught actor Walter Pigeon's eye. When Hollywood shot film footage to support war bonds, Rose portrayed Rosie the Riveter. And there was yet another Rose. Rosalind P. Walter came from a wealthy family. When the war broke out, Rosalind went to work at the Vought Aircraft Company. Her dedication to civic duty captured the attention of a newspaper columnist. In turn, the column inspired two musicians to write the song Rosie the Riveter, honoring all the women who worked long and hard during wartime. Rosie had come to represent the efforts of every working woman across America. And though she wore a suit instead of a bandana, another woman was about to overcome tremendous obstacles to make a difference in wartime. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Like nearly 300,000 others from the Canton region in China, Margaret's parents immigrated to the United States hoping to escape poverty. Her mother, Ah Yane, was just five when she arrived. Her father, Chung Wang, also arrived when he was young. Around that time, Presbyterian missionaries were at work convincing Chinese communities to convert to Christianity. The church believed that if the children grew up Christian, they'd be more likely to marry within the church and raise future generations of Presbyterians who would, in turn, convert more immigrants. Records show that Margaret's father attended a missionary in Los Angeles. While little is known of his or her mother's childhoods, a mission homes often housed and fed immigrant children and then contracted them out as servants. They weren't allowed to leave their assigned positions and received no pay. In 1886, Margaret's father was the only Chinese immigrant to receive baptism. He and her mother met through the church and married. They had 11 children together, though only seven survived past childhood. Margaret Chung was born in 1889. As the eldest, she helped care for her younger siblings. Her father, desperate to keep his large family fed, started his own business raising and selling produce. When that venture failed, he tried selling traditional Chinese herbs or working in other farmers' fields. To find jobs, they moved frequently. Mexican-Americans were evicted to make room for other Americans heading west. Chinese immigrants moved in to work as railroad laborers. As populations increased, racial tensions grew, sparking an anti-Chinese movement. 
Riots targeting Chinese Americans erupted in Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. Like other immigrants, Chung Wang moved his family into more Chinese-populated communities for safety. In addition to caring for her siblings, Margaret worked to help her family. She also had an insatiable appetite for learning and studied hard, hoping that one day she could become a doctor and a medical missionary for the church. The church saw missionary hospitals as a way to create converts while also tending to them. Inspired by the community's charismatic local doctor, who rode a bicycle to house calls, Margaret planned for her future and scoped out colleges and scholarships. When the family moved to Los Angeles in 1902, Margaret took care of her siblings and ailing parents while still attending school. She earned a scholarship to the University of Southern California from the LA Times by selling newspaper subscriptions. While studying at USC, Margaret also held a variety of jobs. She worked at the school cafeteria, sold surgical instruments, and entered debate contests that offered prize money. While women did attend medical schools at the time, it wasn't the norm. Several schools catering to only women closed their doors, citing the number of co-ed medical colleges becoming available. While Margaret attended classes at the university, she dressed in men's clothing, complete with shirt, pants, jacket, and tie, and went by the name Mike. Tragedy struck when her mother passed away from tuberculosis. Her father's health was also failing, and she still had younger siblings who depended on her. Though she still had two more years of school, Margaret refused to give up her dream and managed to do it all. In 1916, she and her fellow students posed for their graduation day photo. Margaret wore her hair slicked back to look more like her male classmates. Along with her clothing, anyone glancing at the photo wouldn't immediately know she was the only woman in her class. With a hard-earned degree and a lifetime of preparation, Margaret applied to become a medical missionary in China. At last, her dream of working as a doctor for the church seemed within her grasp. Except for one detail. Her application was immediately rejected. The rejection confused Margaret. All her life, the church had led her to believe she sought the highest honor by helping others. Thinking that the rejection had been an oversight, she reapplied several times. Finally, she learned that even in her home country, the church didn't want Chinese Americans, and especially women, to work as medical missionaries. Though the rejection stung, Margaret kept applying at hospitals around the country. She persisted even when more rejections rolled in. Her schoolmate, Agnes Schall, who had won several prestigious awards, also received rejections. Meanwhile, male colleagues quickly found employment in hospitals that specialized in women's care. And despite her higher degree of medical training, Margaret took a lower-level internship as a surgical nurse at the Santa Fe Railroad Hospital. While the patients were diverse, the majority were Hispanic workers from Mexico. Though her co-workers often treated them poorly, Margaret offered compassion. She continued to send out applications. In 1916, she received an offer from Dr. Bertha Van Hoosen, a woman physician at the Mary Thompson Women's and Children's Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Van Hoosen was committed to helping other women doctors find work in the field that they had been trained in. Van Hoosen wasn't married, and often referred to Margaret and the others as her surgical daughters. 
Margaret settled right in. Her personal dress code, continued use of the name Mike, and popularity with some of the hospital staff raised a few societal eyebrows, though. In response, the hospital administration implemented a new rule. No two employees could sleep in the same bed. While Margaret's autobiography doesn't mention the sleeping arrangements, it appears that the hospital frowned on her sexual preference for women. But in the early 1900s, women weren't supposed to have much of a sex drive, and certainly not before marriage. So two women living together drew far less suspicion than two men. In addition to working at the hospital, Margaret secured an internship at the Juvenile Psychopathic Institute. While other doctors there rejected pro bono cases, she eagerly took them on for the experience and to learn different treatment and surgery methods. Even with the opportunities and the work, Margaret felt there had to be more. She disliked Chicago's weather and missed California. So, when the news arrived that her father had died from a streetcar accident, she resigned from her position and returned home. She returned to the Santa Fe Railroad Hospital as a staff surgeon. She also built a thriving private practice. Most of her patients were poor, but she never turned them away, even if they couldn't pay. She excelled at surgery. A word of Margaret's ability to perform surgeries that left smaller scars attracted circus performers and Hollywood professionals. Actresses Anna Mae Wong, Mary Pickford, and others became clients and eventually friends. Soon, Margaret began hosting dinner parties for her patients, further growing her clientele base and influence. In the early 1920s, she accompanied two clients to San Francisco and instantly fell in love with the city. In 1922, she left her job and moved to Chinatown. Her lack of a husband, manner of dress, and training in Western medicine was met with distrust among the Chinese community. Still, her practice thrived. She was one of the few to be discreet while attending to women seeking abortions and early forms of birth control. Margaret began a close relationship with the openly gay poet Elsa Gidlow. Elsa was in an open relationship, giving her freedom to pursue Margaret. The two enjoyed dinners and lunches, fueling rumors about Margaret's sexual preferences. Elsa wrote in her journal that the two shared a passionate kiss. She brought Margaret flowers and wrote her poetry, and Margaret took Elsa for car rides throughout the city in her new convertible. The community began to talk about them. Though Elsa and Margaret seemed to share each other's affection, Margaret knew the career and practice she had fought so hard for couldn't survive a scandal. After ending the relationship with Elsa, Margaret fully dedicated herself to work. When U.S. Navy Reserve's ensign Stephen G. Bancroft came to her with an odd request in the early 1930s, Margaret couldn't have foreseen how the turn of events would shape the rest of her life. A few Americans knew that the Japanese had invaded Manchuria, a northeastern region of China, in 1931. The strike was successful, encouraging the Japanese to attack Shanghai. Bancroft wanted to go abroad to fight the Japanese, and asked if Margaret could make arrangements with the Chinese military. American-born Margaret didn't have the influence or connections he needed, but Curious and impressed with his cause, she invited him and his housemates to dinner. 
Bancroft arrived with a handful of pilots, all in their 20s. Margaret and her guests hit it off so well that she invited them back. For months, the group went on camping and hunting trips and continued to dine together. Before Bancroft and the pilots, Margaret's personal life had suffered. The men provided her with much-needed companionship, and the group grew close. They spent so much time together that during one particular dinner, a young pilot announced that they had decided to adopt Margaret as their surrogate mother, and then he kidded her, saying that they had no father. Margaret quipped back that this made them all her fair-haired bastards. The group broke into laughter. The name stuck, and Dr. Margaret Chung quickly became Mom Chung. By 1937, she had over 500 sons, and the media's rapt attention. In 1939, her devotion to her sons inspired Hollywood and the film King of Chinatown. The movie starred Margaret's friend and client, Anna Mae Wong. The comic book series Real Heroes followed. In it, Margaret's likeness shared pages with President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Margaret became the center point for Chinese-American relations during the start of World War II. By 1941, she'd covertly drafted a hundred pilots that made up the famous Flying Tigers Squadron. The Flying Tigers flew P-40 Tomahawk fighters, all flying under Chinese colors. The nose of each had been painted with rows of gleaming teeth. Bounties were awarded to pilots for their aerial victories. All told, Margaret adopted thousands of pilots, along with submariners and even admirals. Celebrities followed, including a young Ronald Reagan and Robert Young. She referred to them as Kiwis, since the movie stars were flightless and didn't serve as pilots. Her group of Kiwis grew to 300 and consisted of celebrities, politicians, and various military personnel. And though her number of sons had grown well into the thousands, she considered each true family. Letters and gifts from the men filled her office. For the U.S. government, Margaret made for great propaganda. For her fair-haired bastard sons, she had become a compassionate surrogate mother. Margaret thrived, and her personal life no longer felt empty. She was free to wear what she wanted among her sons and engage in more masculine hobbies and interests. The public no longer scrutinized her. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941, she sent thousands of care packages to those sons sent to fight in the war. Additions to her famous sons included John Wayne and Admirals William Bull Halsey and Chester W. Nimitz. Her family grew by including daughters like Amelia Earhart. In 1943, an elite group of submariners known as the Golden Dolphins were added. She presented each of the members, who included Henry Fonda, with a leather notebook. She wrote letters to those sent to fight overseas and gifted her pilots with a small jade Buddha on a neck chain. Her role wasn't limited to recruitment, letters, and care packages. Margaret tended to the injured. And she helped create and promote fundraising events for humanitarian efforts, including the popular rice bowl parties. Women's rights were still near and dear to her, and Margaret lobbied for women's inclusion in the military. Her efforts paid off, and in 1942, the military created a reserve corps in the Navy called WAVES, or Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. Her application to WAVES was rejected due to her race and reported sexuality. All of these pulls on her time affected her practice. 
when her fair-haired bastard children learned she could no longer pay for her home, they pitched in to pay her mortgage. Her adopted children often visited her when they returned home, and Mom Chung prepared dinners for them. When she retired from practice, they pitched in again, buying her a home out in Marin County. Mom Chung took to her new home and old age with grace. For her, home was where love blossomed, and though she became increasingly frail, she was always delighted when her children, whom she loved so deeply, came home for dinner. Margaret Chung led a full life. She retained the love of her heritage and committed herself to Chinese-American communities while remaining very patriotic. She'd been a caring daughter and sister, a hard-working student, an intern and nurse dedicated to helping those less fortunate, a devoted physician and a staunch supporter of women's rights. Margaret changed social norms with her sexuality and broke glass ceilings in her professional life. But the 1950s brought changes to America. While most of her adopted sons and daughters remained loyal, the public began to see those of Chinese heritage as part of the Red Scare. She wrote an autobiography that sold few copies, where it would have likely been a bestseller a decade before. In 1958, after feeling unwell for some time, she went to the doctor. The resulting tests revealed ovarian cancer. It would be decades before the medical world would develop a more effective treatment against this highly aggressive and deadly disease. Margaret didn't need the doctors to tell her that surgery was just borrowed time. She underwent the procedure anyway. After recuperating, Margaret went home to plan one last event, her funeral. Vice Admiral Charles Lockwood visited after her surgery and noted that she was in good spirits. Her prognosis of five months to live didn't bother her in the least. Margaret Chung passed away on January 5th of 1959. Her sons and daughters ensured that her funeral went precisely how she had planned. Admiral Nimitz and his wife, Catherine, attended. The Admiral's wife noted in her journal that hundreds of people of all races and walks of life came to pay their respects to Mom Chung and say their final goodbyes. San Francisco's mayor, two admirals, including Nimitz, a couple of privates, and an ensign were her pallbearers. They laid her casket into her final resting place. Later, Admiral Lockwood wrote one last tribute. God bless and rest her very beautiful soul. There will never be another Mom Chung. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus, even more for the whole family, like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. J.C. Penney, make everybody count. There's another Rose who became nearly as famous as Rosie the Riveter, though for different reasons, at least in the beginning. Iva Taguri was born on Independence Day of 1916. Her father, Jun, had immigrated from Japan in 1899. Fumi, her mother, followed in 1913. As a child, Iva enjoyed her time as a Girl Scout. Later, she turned her attention to education, receiving a degree in zoology from the University of Southern California in 1940. Iva's life was full of family and friends, an active social life, but that changed when her aunt in Japan became ill in 1941 and needed help recovering. Iva packed her bags and boarded a ship from San Pedro with only a certificate of identification as proof of her citizenship. When her aunt recovered, Iva contacted the U.S. Vice Consul in Japan for a passport to return home. The paperwork was still in progress when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. The Japanese government insisted that she renounce her U.S. citizenship. Iva refused. As punishment, Iva was declared an enemy alien. Without a war card, that is, a government-issued card that would have allowed her to receive food and other necessities, Iva needed a job. The Domain News Agency offered her a position as a typist. Soon after, she learned that her parents and other Japanese Americans had been taken to an internment camp in Arizona. She also learned that Allied soldiers had been taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp known for their horrific treatment. Iva took a second job with the propagandist radio station Radio Tokyo. The station had forced three prisoners, Australian Captain Charles Cousins, American Captain Wallace Ince, and Philippine Lieutenant Normando Reyes to go on air and demoralize American troops who might listen to their show called The Zero Hour. Iva befriended the men and smuggled them food. Unaware of the friendship, the station assigned her to work on the show with the men. Going by the pseudonym Orphan Anne or Orphan Annie, Iva played music and assisted in a few comedy sketches. After shows that received criticism for their poor English grammar, responsibility for writing the scripts fell to Cousins, Ince, and Reyes. The language barrier worked in the men's favor, and they took to using double entendres and sarcasm in their scripts. Iva also joined in, telling any Allied forces listening that she was their best enemy. In short, she told listeners that she was on their side. Japanese officials never caught on. Iva's voice became well-known during the show's year-and-a-half run, though her identity remained a mystery. Troops began calling her, and other unknown Japanese women propagandists, 
Tokyo Rose. In 1945, Iva married one Philippe D'Aquino, who she met through the station. And with the war over, Iva looked forward to returning home, though she had little money. Time was not on her side. She needed to get home to her parents, and the U.S. was looking for radio propagandists. So, when two reporters offered up $2,000 for an interview with the mysterious Tokyo Rose, Iva answered. She never received a penny, though, and U.S. officials in Yokohama quickly arrested her. They kept Iva in custody for a year, while General Douglas MacArthur's staff and the FBI investigated her. Neither found any evidence that suggested she had committed treason. Iva, now pregnant, was free to return home. News for clearance and her interview detailing her attempts to help the POWs and Allied forces had spread across the country. But radio personality and gossip columnist Walter Winchell launched a campaign against her. His rhetoric sold plenty of newspapers and gained him the support of the American Legion. Even those in General Douglas's army of counterintelligence couldn't convince them of her innocence. Winchell and the Legion pushed to try Iva on U.S. soil. On September 25th of 1948, Iva was arrested on eight counts of treason. The prosecution found Japanese-Americans who claimed Iva had badmouthed the United States during her broadcasts. The testimony didn't match the broadcasts, but that didn't matter to the court. Neither did the rumor that the witnesses had been coached. Her citizenship was revoked, and the court sentenced her to time in the Federal Reformatory for Women in West Virginia. After six years and two months, she was granted parole. Afterward, Iva relocated to Chicago and worked for her father, though she could never restore her reputation. At least, not until 1969, when 60 Minutes investigated her story, prompting the change she sought. President Gerald Ford pardoned her in 1977. And in 2006, just months before her death, the World War II Veterans Committee presented the 90-year-old Iva with the Edward J. Herlihy Citizenship Award for her courage, spirit, and unyielding patriotism. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles.
Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.